0: Jesus, we love you, and we long to be fed by your word. Speak to us today, and if you're able, use me to do it. Any of my words, Lord, that are not yours, may they fall to the ground and blow away. But may your word remain, and may it bear much fruit. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning to you and to your families. It's good to be with you. I know this is not how any of us wish to be worshiping this morning, and yet we can still worship. When I was younger, there was definitely a time when I was ashamed to admit that I enjoyed classical music. It's just not that cool. I mean, if you're in middle school or in high school and you're trying to make new friends, that's probably not one of the things you're going to lead with. And yet, Classical music is this, this amazing genre. I, I Personally, I feel like it's therapy. Sometimes when I'm feeling stressed or anxious, I'll pull up Spotify and I'll look for some instrumental piano or cello. Well, this past week, I listened to one of the greatest violinists of all times, a man named Yasha Heifetz. He was a Russian-American uh, violinist who had a world-renowned career performing Uh, But interestingly, eventually, this man gave up performing in order to teach instead. And after he had become a professor of music at UCLA, someone asked him, why would you give up being a performer in order just to be a professor? And here's what he said. Violin playing is a perishable art. It must be passed on as a personal skill. Otherwise, it is lost. This man loved making much of the violin more than he loved making much of himself playing the violin. I want you to keep this in your minds as we we open to the book of Philippians this morning, and I I think you'll see how it relates. Today in our Philippians series, we will come to an interesting passage, chapter 2, verses 19 to 30. Uh, where, among other things, Paul talks about his travel plans, and he shares some details about two different men and his relationship to them. Uh, But some would say that Paul really doesn't teach much theology here. And as a result, we might be tempted to to skim through a passage like this, or worse, to skip it over and to get to something more meaty. Uh, But I'm afraid that just won't do. I think there is so much we can glean from passages such as this, if we are just willing to take a little time. And so I want to read this passage for us again this morning, and I want to encourage you to follow along in your Bibles if you're able. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that I shortly myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and messenger, your messenger, and minister to my need. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Well, remember, Paul is writing this letter of Philippians from prison, probably in Rome, around 60 AD. It had been about 10 years since Paul had planted this church in Philippi, around 49 to 51 AD. It had been almost 30 years Since Paul had his experience on the Damascus Road where he met Jesus and was converted, that happened around 33 to 36 AD, and 30 years is a pretty long time. 30 years is almost as long as I've been breathing. Consider that. Sometimes we we read the New Testament as if it were just a moment in time and everything really happened super close together, but really this took place over many decades, and so I think it is helpful for us at times to consider the lifetime of the New Testament. What was Paul's lifetime like? For instance, what did Paul do between his conversion and the writing of this letter 30 years later? Well, after believing in Christ, Paul was baptized in Damascus. And we learn from Galatians chapter 1, verse 17, that Paul went to Arabia which at that time was the Nabataean kingdom in modern-day Jordan. And sometime, after sometime in Jordan, we don't know how long exactly, Paul went back to Damascus in order to preach and to minister the gospel there, which by comparison is longer than I've been here at Living Faith. Now eventually, Paul went to Jerusalem to preach. But Acts 9.26 tells us that the twelve apostles were still afraid of him. They, they didn't believe that he was actually a Christian. And so Barnabas, who knew Paul, took Paul personally to visit Peter and Jesus' brother James, and he told them how Paul had been preaching boldly in Damascus. And so Peter and James allowed Paul to keep preaching in Jerusalem on his trip. But soon, a group of Hellenists tried to kill Paul there in Jerusalem, and so he only ended up staying in Jerusalem 15 days, and he didn't meet any of the other apostles. And so fleeing for his life, Paul left to go to his hometown of Tarsus, which is in modern-day Turkey, where he lived 14 years. And we don't know much about what happened in that time. 14 years. Eventually, Paul's old friend Barnabas invited him to the city of Antioch in order to help the church there, which was becoming a missionary center for uh, mission journeys to the Gentiles in the Mediterranean. And after ministering there for a time, the church in Antioch, was so blessed by his ministry that they ended up sending Paul and Barnabas with him to Jerusalem to help the churches there who were experiencing a great famine. After returning to Antioch from that trip about 46 AD, uh, the church at Antioch decided to send Paul and Barnabas out again, this time on a much longer journey. It would last about three years. And they were supposed to go up into the region of Galatia, which is in modern-day Turkey. And in those decades after Paul's conversion, so many Gentiles were being converted to the gospel that a major controversy arose about how to treat the Gentiles. Should they be circumcised? Should they keep the law in order to be Christians? And so, after this first missionary journey was over in 49 AD, we see in Acts chapter 15 that Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem in order to meet with the 12 apostles and other elders there, in order to figure out what they were going to do with the Gentiles. And they decided that because Jesus brought salvation by grace through faith, therefore the Gentiles did not need to keep the old Jewish customs. And that became the message that Paul then took out as he ministered to the Gentiles. So after that Jerusalem council, Paul and Barnabas decided to go on a second missionary journey. But as you might recall, they had a disagreement. They disagreed about whether to bring this guy John Mark with them again. And because of that conflict, they decided they would part ways. And instead, Paul took Silas with him. Barnabas took John Mark with him. And as Paul and Silas made their way up into Galatia for the second time, they came again to the city of Lystra. And according to Acts 16, verses 1 to 3, there they meet a young man named Timothy. Who decided he was going to join Paul and Silas. And it was very soon after this that in the city of Troas, Paul received that vision of the Macedonian man beckoning him to come and help them. And thus, Paul and Silas and Timothy end up in the city of Philippi, where they met a woman named Lydia, who was the first to believe the gospel there. And now, 10 years later, Paul writes this letter to the Philippian church, and in this letter to his dear brothers and sisters there, Paul again mentions Timothy, who they would have known well. And so what I want us to do is to, to look at this morning, to look at more closely at this young man named Timothy, and to see why it is that Paul bothers to mention him at all, but especially in this passage. Well, who is Timothy? As we've said, Acts 16 tells us that Timothy was from Lystra. His father was a Greek, his mother was a Jew, which meant that Timothy had a mixed heritage, religiously and ethnically. According to 2 Timothy 1, verse 5, Timothy's mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice, both raised Timothy to know and to love the Jewish scriptures. And what is likely As Paul references them in 2 Timothy 1, verse 5, what's likely is that Lois and Eunice became Christians on Paul's first missionary journey when he stopped into Lystra with Barnabas. And then sometime shortly after, Timothy also believed the gospel as well. Now that Paul has returned again to Lystra on this second missionary journey with Silas, we meet Timothy, and he's growing in the faith, and we find out that Timothy is well-respected among the believers there. And so seeing Timothy, Paul decides he wants to invite him to join he and Silas. And Timothy agrees to go with them. But in order to do that, uh, something difficult has to happen. Paul decides that he needs to circumcise Timothy. Remember, Timothy's father was a Greek, and so Timothy was not circumcised at this point. But why did Paul want to circumcise him now? This is confusing. Remember, the Jerusalem council had just happened, and the apostles decided that circumcision wasn't necessary for Gentiles. So why was Paul subjecting Timothy to this kind of agony? Well, Acts 16, verse 3 says, Paul circumcised Timothy not because it was necessary for his salvation, but so that his uncircumcision would not be an obstacle to sharing the gospel with other Jews. Timothy was willing to take this on. Timothy sacrificed his comfort and became a missionary apprentice to Paul and Silas. And in that time, he just spent a great deal of time with Paul, ministering, doing life together, just like Jesus' disciples did with Jesus. And when that kind of thing happens, there really is this amazing opportunity for learning and for growth. And what had happened over the course of Paul's life of ministry is that he had built this network of churches. And he had raised up leaders who he had trained and given authority to lead in those churches. And we know those leaders as deacons, presbyters, and bishops. And through Timothy's apprenticeship to Paul, he eventually became one of those presbyters through the laying on of hands by Paul and other elders. And as Timothy was growing in his faith and growing in his leadership capacity, On many occasions, Paul gave him authority and sent him out as a presbyter to take care of specific ministry needs around the region. The first assignment he got was to go to Thessalonica, and Paul wanted him simply to encourage the believers there who were experiencing a lot of persecution. Later, Paul sent him on an assignment to Corinth, which must have been a really tough assignment, Uh, He went prior to Paul's letter of 1 Corinthians, and so we can see how Timothy would have stepped into a whole host of problems there in that congregation. Eventually, Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus in order to deal with false teachers there and to lead worship and to ordain deacons and presbyters to lead that church, and it's Paul's letter, 1 Timothy, which he sent to Timothy there in order to help him on that mission. Now, we learn that Timothy also has some weaknesses Evidently, he was pretty timid. He could be pretty fearful. And I guess some people in Corinth found him to be pathetic. See 1 Corinthians 16. And so it makes sense why in other letters, but especially in the pastoral epistles, why Paul would mention Timothy and say, don't be fearful. Don't let anyone look down on you because of your age. Accept the spirit of courage. Now, what outshines Timothy's weaknesses are his fierce loyalty and his undying faithfulness, which Paul commends over and over again in his epistles, and we see it right here in Philippians 2, verses 19 to 22. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment, but Timothy isn't the only person, isn't the only person Paul mentions in this passage. He also mentions the guy named Epaphroditus. And we certainly don't know as much about Epaphroditus as we do about Timothy, but we do know some things. Epaphroditus was born and raised in Philippi, and so the Philippians would have known him very well. Epaphroditus became a part of that Philippian church through Paul's ministry there, and he must have been notable enough that when Paul ended up in prison, the Philippian church selected him to bring the financial provision uh, to Paul in prison and to help him while he was there in whatever way he needed, and we'll see that in Philippians chapter 4. This trip from Philippi to prison, especially if it were in Rome, would have been an extremely long and very dangerous journey. And Epaphroditus is willing to do it. And in fact, we learn in our passage today from verse 27 that as a result of his travels, Epaphroditus fell severely ill to the point where he almost died. But thankfully, Epaphroditus recovered. And and so Paul wants to send this healthy young man back to Philippi. and, And Epaphroditus is the one who is actually going to carry this letter that we know as Philippians, back to the church there to be read in the congregation. I'm giving you a lot of biography there. We know a bit about Timothy and Epaphroditus, and no, I don't expect you to remember all of that, but the question is, knowing who these men are, why does Paul mention them here in chapter 2? He's only halfway through the letter. Typically, Paul will talk about his travel plans at the beginning or the end of a letter. And in doing so, he'll mention certain individuals, those that he's with, those that he longs to be with. So why here in the middle of the letter, is Paul talking about these two guys? Did he just lose his train of thought? Did he think he was going to end the letter and then realize he had more he wanted to say and then two chapters later finish the letter? No, I, I think there's a clear reason why Paul is mentioning them now. Everything Paul has been talking about up till now has been centered on this big idea that the Philippians should keep living out their faith in service to Christ, just as they have been doing up till now. And here, in chapter 2, verses 19 to 20, Paul is essentially saying this here are two models of faithful service to Jesus who I want you to learn from. Here are two models of faithful service to Jesus Christ who I want you to learn from. And there are two specific things that Paul points out in their example. Here's the first. He points out their selfless sacrifice for others. Selfless sacrifice for others. Paul says of Timothy in verse 20, for I have no one like him. Who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare? For 10 years since they met, Timothy served alongside Paul. And in that time, he had learned the love of Christ through sacrifice. What do you think it cost Timothy to leave Lystra and to set out for years of travel, dangerous travel? What do you think it cost him to preach to people? People who might get angry and try and kill him. What dangers and sufferings and financial losses had he made to follow Christ in this way? And Paul says that in the last 10 years, like a son serving alongside his father, Timothy has shown himself to be concerned for the welfare of others. In other words, not thinking about himself in the process. What about Epaphroditus? This guy was willing to make a long, treacherous journey just to deliver a gift, just so Paul would be cared for. And in doing so, he almost died. And thus Paul says in verse 21, He is my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. What sacrifice these two men had shown in order to take care of the needs of other people They sound a lot like Jesus to me. And as you know, like Jesus, these men received no accolades from the culture. They were not building a political base for future power. They received hardly any financial remuneration. They had no incentive to sacrifice themselves except the joy of following Jesus. And Paul says, look at that. The second thing Paul points out about these guys is is this. It's faithfulness despite suffering. Faithfulness despite suffering. You see, it's, it's one thing to make sacrifices for others. Not everyone is willing to do that, but many are. But only a few of those people are willing to make sacrifices over and over and over again. And this is what Paul points to in the lives of Timothy and Epaphroditus. It is one thing to sacrifice for Jesus, but it is another thing to be faithful to Jesus when he requires greater sacrifice than you ever thought that he would ask of you. It's one thing to make sacrifices early on in your life, but it's another thing to keep trusting Jesus when the suffering from your earlier sacrifices, begins to set in. Perhaps you've experienced something like that. I can imagine Timothy deciding to go along with Paul and Silas. In doing so, he wouldn't be adding to his job resume anymore. He wouldn't be earning near the same level of income anymore. He wouldn't be saving for retirement anymore He wouldn't be helping his reputation anymore. He wouldn't be able to enjoy his family anymore or to help his family if they needed him anymore. And that cost Timothy a lot right then. But can you imagine how Timothy might have felt 10 years down the road when those sacrifices he has made began to reap their rewards? What if he needed work? What experience would he list? What if he ran out of money? Where would he get it? What if he got too old to work? Who would take care of him? What if he needed to rely upon his good reputation to get by? What good reputation would he have? What if he needed his family's help? Would they help him now after he didn't help them? You see, when we decide to invest in following Jesus, we are making a decision not to invest in other things. And there is an initial cost we pay up front. And then there's the cost that we pay down the road when all of the earthly investments that we could have made aren't there and thus don't pay off. And there are times in our life of following Jesus, if we are making sacrifices to do so, when we will cry out, Jesus, I've given you so much already, what more do you want to take from me? And Jesus will lovingly say, I want it all. I want it all because I want to give you myself, and I'm worth it. I'm worth it. And thus Jesus would say to us in Luke 9.23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, sacrifice, and take up his cross, the instrument of execution, daily, and follow me. Timothy learned had to be faithful despite suffering. Because what he knew was that while his earthly investments were few, he was making an investment in the kingdom of God which cannot be shaken and in the glorious inheritance of the saints that he would receive. And it was worth it. And so what Paul does here in chapter 2 verses 19 to 30 is to show us how essential it is for us to have models of what obedience looks like in our context, and in our culture, and in our own lives. And for the Philippians, that was Timothy and Epaphroditus. And he says, basically, there, there are two things that you should do when you look at examples like these. The first is that you should honor them. Honor them. What this means is that you hold them up before your collective view. You. you celebrate them as someone worthy of your time and your energy. Now our our culture, our culture and the church, I think, has, has fallen prey to this as well holds all sorts of people up before us, and unfortunately, most of them do not fit the criteria for honor that Paul sets here. So what are we doing to honor those who are sacrificing themselves for others, who are unswervingly faithful to Christ? Who in your life is most like that? And will you honor them? Scottish historian Thomas Carlyle said, Show me the man you honor, and I will show you what kind of man you are. And that leads to the second thing that Paul says we should do in regards to examples like these. That second thing is to imitate them. Imitate them. Imitation means seeing what they do and then doing what they do. Paul was imitating Jesus, and Timothy and Epaphroditus were imitating Paul, and the Philippians were to imitate Timothy and Epaphroditus, and someday others would become the ones to imitate the Philippians. And this way of modeling, it's how the kingdom grows, both in quality and in quantity, Modeling the life of Christ is how the Christian faith is handed down from generation to generation. It's through modeling. And the truth is that we will all choose someone to imitate, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And in doing so, we will all become the people that we honor. How much better is it for us to intentionally And wisely choose who we will honor and imitate. Really, practically today, I want to just challenge you. I want to challenge you to identify two people in your life. Two specific individuals. Person one is someone that you want to model your life after. Someone that you know personally or someone that you know of in the history of the church. Someone who is sold out to Jesus. Become their apprentice. Learn as much from them as you can. Read whatever they've written. Ask them why and how they do what they do. Consider the sacrifices they've made. Consider how faithful they've been to Jesus despite suffering, and then strive to be like them. Person two is someone that you want to model your life for. When I was in college, I was a part of a ministry called Campus Outreach. And when I was a freshman, there was a senior named Richard And Richard approached me one day, and he asked me a really strange question. He said, Peter, can I disciple you? No one had ever asked me a question like that, at least not that explicitly. But what I knew in the moment Richard asked me that was that I wanted it. And over the next two years, Richard met with me for lunch and for coffee, and we studied the Bible together, and we prayed together, and Richard helped me to grow in my faith. And like Richard, I think each and every one of us who have been following Christ for at least a couple of years should be looking for an apprentice to disciple. How many of you right now are pouring your life intentionally into someone else so that they might learn how to follow Christ from you? How many of you? Now, you may not have had that for yourself. I was blessed to have that. You may not feel adequate to model anything for anyone. But chances are, there is someone less mature in the faith than you that can learn something from you. And what I know is that they will learn nothing from you if you do nothing. God has been so good to us not to leave us to follow Christ and to learn what that means by ourselves. He's given us brothers and sisters. He's given us companions in the way. And he's given people who model what Christ looks like, our spiritual fathers and mothers. And to some degree, in a passage like this, I think that Paul is saying to us, following Christ is a perishable art. It must be passed on as a personal skill. Otherwise, it is lost. And if that's true, then who will we learn following Christ from? And who will we teach it to? Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for the spiritual fathers and mothers of our faith who teach us what it looks like to follow you through sacrifice, and through suffering. Lord, would you capture our hearts when we look at people like that and may it give us a yearning to be like them because they are yearning to be like Christ. Teach us not to look at any human being as infallible, Lord, only to Jesus Christ, our perfect example. But Lord, help us to learn what we are able From the lives of faithful saints such as Timothy and Epaphroditus. We love you, Lord. We long to be like you through your spirit and through the models of others. Make it so in us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.